From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Twice now, a black church in Denver has become a COVID-19 vaccination clinic. A lot of our older adults will come here when they will not go to a 10,000-person situation or even pull up in their car. Plus, doctors share their own experiences getting the vaccine, including side effects. Then, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival is underway. One selection is about e-waste. On average, people have been upgrading their cell phones about every two and a half years. And Colorado is home to the pinto bean capital of the world. So in our series, The Kitchen Shelf, we crack open an old cookbook with pinto bean desserts. It's a really moist spice cake because you mash up the pinto beans You don't even notice the beans or the bean holes. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As of Monday, 704,000 Coloradans had gotten at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. But African-Americans and Latinos in Colorado are not being immunized relative to their populations. That's why churches like Shorter African Methodist Episcopal in Denver are holding vaccination events. The Black Church is not just a place where many persons in our community came on Sunday, but it was the center of community activity. Um, A lot of our older people, uh, whenever they had important decisions to make or whenever they were sick or going into the hospital, they uh, were used to calling the pastor to get advice or to get prayer. And so the church is a, a place of trust and hopefully it's accessible. And so a lot of our older adults will come here when they will not go to a 10,000-person situation or even pull up in their car. That is Reverend Timothy Tyler of Shorter AME, which has held two events with UC Health to vaccinate folks 70 and up. They didn't have to be members of the church. Reverend Tyler believes the reason more people of color aren't getting the vaccine is twofold. There is a historical distrust about vaccinations. Uh, Historically, uh, medical persons and doctors and hospitals have oftentimes overlooked and did not listen to the aches and pains of our, especially our older black community. But I'm of the opinion, now having this second clinic here at Shorter Church, I'm of the opinion that it's not so much trust as it is also access. It is not accessible to us uh, and it is not accessible to our communities. And so I'm, I'm more focused on that. While I do also agree that we have to create a level of trust and a level of confidence that um, this is OK for black people. Well, let's talk more about access and trust with State Senator Julie Gonzalez of Denver. She has orchestrated similar vaccine events in her district. Senator, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. I understand, uh, first off, this year really started um, in a difficult way for you. You lost three family members to COVID-19 in the span of a month. Would you mind sharing just a little bit about that experience? 
certainly. This was um, honestly, you know, me supporting my husband is his uh, mom, his uncle, and his grandfather, who all lived together up in North Glen, um, uh, fell ill, um, were hospitalized, and then um, subsequently were all uh, placed on. Um, uh, ventilators. Um, Ben's, my, my husband, Ben, his grandfather passed away on December the 9th. And um, my mother-in-law, Jean, and Ben's uncle, Johnny, were then on ventilators until the beginning of uh, January. And then we actually ended up doing a triple funeral um, uh, on January the 11th. And so, you know, for, for me, this is, is uh, it's not theoretical. This mm. virus is so real. Um, we have witnessed firsthand just how devastating, um, just how devastating it can be. A triple funeral, my goodness. And I wonder if those losses come with added sting, given that vaccines are already underway. You know, it's like the, the end was in sight in some regards. You know, what was so difficult about this is that um, my family members had been, um, they had been taking all of the precautions. They had been doing so much to try to keep themselves safe. We have no idea actually how they got sick. And um, and so it was, it's just been a, an emotional roller coaster um, to, uh, to, to watch them uh, uh, get sick, um, to... Um, support my husband as he's navigating um, uh, the grief compounded upon itself. And then to also know that as, as terrible as this pain feels for, for us as a family, like it's also just not unique. Um, there are so many people across this state, over 5,000 Coloradans who have, who have been impacted, who have lost their lives. And so for us, it's been really important to try to do everything that we can to help as many people get vaccinated as possible. Addressing the very real fears that many uh, people of color have. Yes. And, and so this experience, I know, led you to create these community vaccine clinics. And, and talk to me about why these community-based events are so important, you know, versus say the the drive up clinics at Coors Field. It's a, it's a really good question, and thank you for asking it. You know, I I would say that as we were, um, it was a pretty pretty intense week for me because on Monday we had um, the, this triple funeral, and then on Wednesday I returned back to the Capitol where I serve as a state senator for Northwest and Downtown Denver. Um, and to to um, see how uh, deeply community was being impacted, and then to also see some of the numbers um, where at that point, uh, I think four point three percent of Latinos um, had received the vaccine, and yet Latinos make up twenty two percent of the population. Um, just really um, structural inequities, right? And so. Um, working in collaboration alongside Representative Gonzalez Gutierrez, uh, city council members, Amanda Sandoval and uh, Jimmy Torres, and also uh, DPS school board uh, director, Angela Covian, 
you know, we're all Latinas who represent, uh, you know, different parts of the north side of Denver or the west side or southwest Denver. We said, how can we utilize our resources, our uh, connections in order to better directly serve our constituents and combat that inequity that we're all seeing um, so starkly in, in the data? And so it was by us working together and collaborating that um, over the course of two weekends, uh, first over at Servicios de la Raza, which is a longstanding uh, nonprofit ser uh, service agency. Yeah. Um, we were able to uh, vaccinate uh, well over 600 um, uh, elders in our community. And it was such a success um, that the very next weekend uh, over at St. Cajetan's uh, Catholic Church down in southwest Denver, we were able to um, vaccinate well over a thousand uh, Coloradans. Talk to me about the talk to me about the importance of those locations. Do you think location has a lot to do with this? Absolutely, and you know, I, I did hear, hear uh, Reverend Tyler um, speak immediately uh, uh, prior, and I will just um, underscore um, that um, the way that you combat hesitancy is by going to um, places that already hold trust within our communities. And Servicios de la Raza is a longstanding um, uh, service agency that has served um, the community for you know, well over 40 years. And St. Cajetan's uh, Church is just a, a hub um, for um, Latinos and for immigrants um, to, to come forward. And, you know, the fact that the priest um, uh, at mass was saying, hey, if you want to get vaccinated, there are volunteers here ready to sign you up. That is as important a message, a message sometimes as hearing from a doctor or hearing from, you know, me as an elected official or what, what have you. Um, being able to address the hesitancy by um Making sure that that trusted community partners are front and center, so critical, so critical. What is the hesitancy that you hear? I, I'm curious what and how you address it. You know, um, it's been uh, it's been really intense um, because there's there's a lot of different um, issues that folks are are um, are are expressing to us um, as we were registering uh, people and answering phone calls. Um, there were questions around, is it safe? Um, will it hurt? What will the side effects be? Um, but then also other questions around, specifically with the immigrant community. Um, is it okay? Will, will I have to pay for it? Might ICE um, get this information? You know. Now, to be clear, um, the vaccine is free and um, we have really strong HIPAA um, privacy protections uh, to ensure that your data is protected, but we had to go through and answer those questions one-on-one -on -one, uh, in order for folks to feel safe and comfortable um, to sign up and get that vaccine. While you were getting ready for the last event at St. Cajetan's, uh, something happened. Your cell phone number was broadcast on TV to countless Coloradans. The TV station thought it was the number for vaccine appointments, not not knowing it was your cell phone. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I understand there were a flood of calls late at night. They didn't stop for days. What were you hearing in those calls? 
the calls started happening on both my and Representative Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez's phones at the same time. About 10.10 that evening, um, right after our numbers had been posted up on on TV, um, we started getting uh, phone calls. And then they picked up again um, at about 5 in the morning and just nonstop. And as, um, you know, as I, I started returning phone calls, you know, I heard desperation. I heard people who were shocked and amazed that somebody else was actually picking up the phone on the other end of the line and answering their questions and actually getting them through um, to get it to get an appointment. Um, you know, it was just um, hearing a voice, just hearing a voice, yeah, just hearing a voice. People, you know, folks cried um, just with with gratitude. There were happy tears. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your sharing your story. Absolutely. There's so much more work to do, but um, it's it's by addressing these um, uh, these barriers that we can uh, make sure that we keep our communities safe. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Senator Julie Gonzalez of Denver on what she calls equity clinics to get more people of color vaccinated. Another clinic at Servicios de la Raza is planned for this weekend in Colorado Springs. Chills, aches and pains and headaches are possible side effects of the COVID-19 vaccines. These symptoms occur most often after the second dose, but they're temporary and studies show the vaccines are safe and effective. CPR's Andrea Dukakis is part of our COVID-19 reporting team. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. And you've spoken to doctors about their own side effects getting the vaccine. You've also reviewed the research. Tell us what you know. I spoke to Dr. Dan Jones. He's an internist in Denver, and he was eligible early for his vaccine because of his job. Here's what happened after he got his first dose of the Moderna vaccine. Really, the only side effect that I had from the first vaccine was a sore arm that started pretty soon after I received the shot. But I went home and was able to work. And then aside from a sore arm, didn't really have any negative effects. Okay, the first dose, not a big deal for him. Right. But then 28 days later, he goes in for his second vaccine. Eight or nine hours after, I started to show some new symptoms, chills, headache, muscle aches and joint pains. That night, I did not sleep very well. And when I woke up the next morning, I still felt pretty poor. Dr. Jones said he was able to work that day, but still felt lousy. It wasn't until the following day at about 3 p.m. that he felt completely better. He said he's had co-workers who felt even worse than he did and couldn't work for a day or so. I mean, there are people who don't have that luxury of being able to miss work. But not everyone has symptoms, right, Andrea? Right. On the other end of the spectrum is Jones's wife, <laughs> Crystal Joy. She's a psychologist in Parker, so she's eligible early for the vaccine, too. She got a little headache after the first dose, which she says may or may not have been triggered by the vaccine. Then three weeks later, she got the second dose. The second vaccination was after Dan's. I think his was on a Thursday and mine was on Saturday. And he didn't have a great response to it. So I was prepared and went in on Saturday and things felt fine. I went for a five-mile run. And Sunday, I was ready to take the day off and be on the couch and nothing happened. I was fine. 
She said she may have been a little fatigued, but it's hard to say what was that was from exactly. Okay. All in all, a, a very easy experience for her. Right. She did also say she felt some soreness in her arm. She gets that with the flu shot, too. And lots of people will have some discomfort at the injection site. Jones does say his wife is a badass when it comes to pretty much everything. Okay. She's a big athlete. And Joy says Jones isn't always the toughest guy when it comes to being sick. But she says after that second dose, her husband's reaction to the vaccine was unmistakable. It wasn't just the placebo effect. He said he had aches in his joints, which is something I've never heard him say. And we've been together now for over 16 years. And he said his hips hurt, which I've never heard him talk about his hips before. I imagine as a medical doctor, Dan Jones believes these side effects are minor and shouldn't deter folks from getting the COVID-19 vaccine, Andrea. Like most physicians, he believes the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh the temporary side effects and the potentially lethal dangers of contracting the virus. The question is how to explain all of this to those of his patients who are hesitant to get the vaccine. Some are worried about these post-vaccine side effects. Jones's answer is to be upfront with his patients about what happened to him. He also makes sure to tell them about his wife's experience. Hmm. He says some of his patients' nervousness has to do with how quickly the vaccines were developed. They say they don't know about the long-term side effects, but studies have shown the vaccine is safe and effective. Still, Jones doesn't want to be dismissive of them either. I welcome the conversation. Honestly, in the last few months, almost every visit that I have with patients, we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. I give them an opportunity to ask questions. I want to understand if they have reservations so that we can talk through that. Jones worries that many people get misinformation from the Internet or through word of mouth, and he wants to dispel any myths. Uh, He notes that many patients of different racial and ethnic groups also have a historical distrust of the healthcare system. I talked with Dr. Fernando Hogan about the vaccine and its potential side effects. He echoes a lot of what Dr. Jones told me. Hogan is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Anschutz Medical Center. Maybe two-thirds to a half of people will have things like, you know, chills, muscle pain, headaches. But as in the studies, most of them were mild to moderate. There were not hospitalizations related to these events and people recovering one to two days. So I do tell people expect that you may feel sicker, but it's going to go away. And what I always tell people is like, this is by far much better than getting COVID without comparison, right? Much better than getting COVID-19. Yeah, Andy says if folks feel sick after the vaccine, they can always take over-the-counter medication like Tylenol or Advil. But he says don't take the meds before the vaccine. Those are the official recommendations from the both the vaccine companies and the Center for Disease Control. And it's largely based on theoretical you know, concerns. So people say don't take it before, take it after, you know, if you have symptoms. Now, I should point out that there are a very small number of people who may unknowingly be allergic to one of the compounds in the vaccine. That's why there's this required 15-minute wait after it's given. It's so people can get medical attention if they have a severe reaction. They can also have mild allergic reactions like itching or hives. I have heard that the post-vaccine side effects like body aches and chills are actually signs that the body's immune system is kicking in. Is that true? 
particularly with the second vaccine, and perhaps that's because your body has already been prepared to attack this protein that the virus uses to get into your cells. At the same time, Dr. Holguin says lots of patients worry that if they don't have these side effects, mm. the vaccine isn't working. People will say, hey, I have no symptoms. Therefore, I have no immune response to the vaccines. I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm going to get infected. There's absolutely no correlation between how much severe symptoms you get to the vaccine and how effective it is in you. So it doesn't really matter. If you're one of the lucky ones that don't get anything, that's great. Dr. Holguin told me a funny story about his own experience with the COVID-19 vaccine. He was part of one of the trials. I was in the Moderna trial. I was in the, um, in the placebo arm. And on both shots, I had side effects, and I was injected with saline. I mean, the, the brain is incredibly powerful, right? Dr. Holguin told me he had a headache and chills. So you might think you're having side effects, and it's really your brain doing tricks on you. The psychology of this is fascinating. Andrea, thank you so much. Thanks. Andrea Dukakis is on CPR's COVID-19 reporting team. Colorado is giving away free electric bicycles. It's one piece of the state's plan to confront climate change. CPR's Sam Brash reports the bikes are also an effort to help lower-income Coloradans. The cold hasn't stopped Shalon Bowens from weekend spins on her new e-bike. It's a beautiful um, red, ruby red um, bike. And it has my little bougie shopping bag back here. So you can go shopping with the bag on the back. Bowen's got her bike through a program with the Colorado Energy Office. Last fall, it gave out 13 bikes to essential workers. Bowen's qualified since she works for a sexual health clinic in East Denver. I, I cried. I did. I was so happy because I was like, oh my God, I got the bikes. Will Tour directs the Energy Office. The agency is leading Colorado's efforts to confront climate change. He says that'll mean big changes to transportation, which produces more greenhouse gas emissions than any other piece of Colorado's economy. I think that equity is in transportation is really important, and that as we move to clean transportation, we need to keep that in mind. But past efforts to support more sustainable transportation don't always help lower-income people. Take tax credits for electric vehicles. In Colorado, those often go toward Teslas or other luxury cars. Tour says the e-bike program is a test run for a different kind of policy. We certainly wouldn't argue that alone it's going to address the, the transportation challenges that the state has. And the pilot program has shown promising results so far. E-bike recipients log their activity in an app, and early data showed they replace car trips with bike trips about three times per week. Bowen says it's also been a tremendous help for her mental and physical health. She likes that the e-bike can do 20 miles per hour all on its own, but still lets her pedal along when she wants a workout. I lost... 70 pounds. I lost a lot of weight. Colorado is now moving on to a bigger round of giveaways. It's taking applications for 130 e-bikes or so, this time for organizations rather than individuals. It's a tiny piece of Colorado's bigger picture plans for transportation and climate change. But Bowen says it's always good to get moving. There you go. Yes. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the cinematic riches of the Colorado Environmental Film Festival. I'm Ryan Morner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
time to turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, a novel about pets. Boulder author R.L. Mazes has written Other People's Pets. Her main character is an animal empath. Somebody who could literally feel what animals feel in her body. Pick up Other People's Pets and join Colorado Matters Saturday, February 27th to meet the author. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Colorado Environmental Film Festival is underway its 15th year. The event usually takes place in Golden, but this time it's virtual because of the pandemic, of course. The festival features eco-minded films from all over the world. Thirteen of these movies, though, come from Colorado filmmakers. This is all happening online through Sunday. Environmental educator Nicole Bickford is the festival's director. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you very much, and good morning. And filmmaker Dave Steinke is festival co-chair. Hi, Dave. Hi, good morning. Nicole, 15 years is a big anniversary. Uh, it must be a bit of a bummer not to have in-person events, but has the virtual format provided any opportunities? Most definitely. We uh, it, we started planning early on, right after um, our conclusion last year, and at that point knew that things would have to look drastically different for this year. So we've been uh, well underway with this virtual plan since about April of 2020. Uh, but the virtual festival itself, the idea of it really gives us the opportunity to reach um, a wider audience. Um, we we are the Colorado Environmental Film Festival, but not everybody around Colorado can or wants to travel to Golden in the middle of the winter. Uh, so having a virtual festival like this allows people throughout the entire state and further uh, to actually engage with these films. So we've seen a an increase in viewership, which is fantastic. And it's a great way to get these films out in front of a larger audience. I understand the festival is organized by themes. So you have a climate change collection, a good news collection, water issues. But it's the Colorado collection that I'd like to focus on. Uh, Dave, this includes a film from a Denver teenager. I understand he's 14. This is not his first movie. Tell us about him. Yeah, this is great. It's a film called E-Waste and Me and uh, directed by Miller Chedwin. Um, he's a 14-year-old, and uh, this is his fourth film that he's entered uh, into the Colorado Environmental Film Festival. Um, he's a student at uh, the Denver School of the Arts, and um, he's a, a young and upcoming filmmaker. We, we just love him. Why don't we hear just a bit of his film about e-waste? E-waste has become a major problem in the U.S. On average, people have been upgrading their cell phones about every two and a half years, which means there are nearly 150 million phones thrown away each year, most of which aren't recycled or disposed of correctly. I certainly did some uh, thinking about my own phone habits when I heard that. Uh, what stood out to you about this film, Dave? Uh, I thought it was... Uh... Interesting, when we chatted with him, uh, we have Q&A sessions with all of the directors. He said that when his computer broke, he went to uh, the company and said, I'd like to get it repaired. And it was more expensive than purchasing a new one. And when he looked at his old broken computer, he really thought about, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to get rid of it? 
um, in an environmental way. And that created uh, the idea for his film. Dave, there's also a documentary about the Gold King mine spill, which contaminated the Animas River in southwestern Colorado in 2015. Let's listen. I can't imagine how, how, how painful it's got to be just to, to watch your entire ecosystem just get destroyed by a few idiots, money-hungry idiots. That's from Acid Mine Nation, which is actually a series. And we hear a lot of anger in that clip, don't we, Dave? Yeah, we really do. That's from uh, director Tom Shalachi out of uh, Silverton, Colorado. And um, he was uh, in a seminar series and heard about some of these things going on, went to Denver, bought a camera, and started making environmental films. Oh. Um, the one that we're featuring this year is uh, part two, which is the reaction uh, from the people, the residents, the community of Colorado. And then he'll have three more parts uh, dealing with New Mexico, the Navajo Nation, and about it becoming a Superfund site. Of course, that spill dramatically discolored the river. And uh, as you say there, there were impacts on downstream communities. Did you learn new things about the Gold King Mine spill from Acid Mine Nation? Yeah, we really did. Um, he had a lot of new uh, videotape. He's been uh, taping um, since it happened um, in August of 2015 and had a lot of new interviews with uh, Colorado lawmakers, uh, EPA officials, um, and really uh, tease it up um, for the other three pieces that are coming. We'll talk about some more Colorado films in a moment, but Nicole, how would you describe the Colorado environmental filmmaking scene? I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of good local material to choose from. We do. Um, there's a great there's a great base in Colorado um, for filmmaking. We've got great support from the Colorado Office of um, Film and Television. Um, they they love to bring both external groups into filming Colorado as well as um, supporting our local filmmakers here. Um, one of the best things about the festival when we're in person is bringing everybody together, and we usually get a large number of our filmmakers who come and attend in person. Uh, it looks a little different this year, but we do have filmmakers joining in during our virtual happy hours and doing these live Q and A's, which allows us more opportunity to really dig in deeper into um, seeing the uh, kind of the background of their film and the passion behind what they do. Um, so it's really, um, it's great to be able to work with those local filmmakers and showcase what is near and dear to their heart. And what is near and dear to their heart? And does that change? It is, it is quite, quite varied. Um, every year, um, our festival features a, a huge variety of, um, of film topics, anywhere from films that are uh, simply inspirational, that show the beauty of nature, all the way to um, extremely intense activism-based films. Um, so these filmmakers, for the most part, are showcasing uh, you know, their their point of view, the things that they are passionate about, whether it's water issues um, in the American Southwest or um, mining challenges in Peru. Uh, every year the issues change slightly, but with the collections that we have featured this year, um, there are common themes that kind of run through each year. It's just the focus is slightly different depending on what that filmmaker's passion is. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the Colorado Environmental Film Festival. We're joined by its co-chair, 
and its director. And uh, David Steinke, there's another film I want to talk about on a perhaps a lighter subject. High Country is a documentary about small mountain communities in Colorado like Crested Butte. Here's a taste. We all love this place for what it was, but the only way this place was going to survive was with tourism, was with people coming here and bringing money. What sorts of tensions does this film explore about mountain life? Well, all of the tensions that these small communities that want to uh, to stick around. Um, High Country, um, it, 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 a really nice film by director Connor Hagen, who was born and raised there in Crested Butte and sees his documentary as a, a bit of a history project to uh, take people and viewers back uh, to the history of Crested Butte and how it started as a coal mining town and how it grew up and um, then the molybdenum mine, the Red Lady, uh, it kind of takes it through all of that and then to survive how it has to depend on skiing and wildflower um, tours um, and tourism. And that that's the tension that he's trying to bring to his film. Oh. Crested Butte, home of the Wildflower Festival. And I have to think that any number of mountain communities may see aspects of their own identities in, in a film like that. Yeah, I think that's exactly what Connor is trying to show, that it's not just Crested Butte, but it's small mountain, even Eastern Plain uh, communities that will struggle if they haven't, um, or to recognize that those are struggles that they've been through as well. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating that uh, uh, any number of people move to mountain communities to escape the bustling crowds, and yet to some extent the destiny of those communities is based on drawing those bustling crowds, you know? <laughs> that is the uh, the irony of that. And I think Connor did a nice job in, in painting that picture, not pointing too many fingers, um, but, but trying to, to let other communities know the, the struggles that Crested Butte went through and uh, and what they might go through as well. Yeah, I can imagine how easy it would be to slip into the blame game, but it sounds like Connor Hagen doesn't do that in the film High country. You know, Dave, Colorado filmmakers don't always train their lens locally. One director decided to focus on permafrost in Siberia, as we'll hear in this clip. This rapid ecosystem change uh, in Siberia and in the north in general, it's a large area and it's globally important in terms of, kind of the, the carbon cycle. Globally important in terms of the carbon cycle. Why is this region so important? Well, it's in that deep larch forest um, uh, up in Siberia. And uh, uh, this uh, smoldering ice, a really nice film uh, directed by Aaron Lewis, who was a student at CSU at the time. Um, and a group of other college students uh, went to help study uh, the permafrost. And um, it's almost an adventure film just getting to the research site. I bet. And um, I think one of the, uh, the most amazing shots, at least to me in this film, is probably two or three inches of mosquitoes on their legs and arms and their netting and having to put up with that 12 hours a day to study permafrost oh. in, in Siberia. So fascinating look at, at this research. And warming permafrost has all sorts of implications for climate change. It really does. It's one of the great carbon sinks in the world. And without that, uh, as it melts, 
or in the case of Alaska and Siberia, where they have large forest fires, we lose that carbon sink, and that adds a lot to uh, to climate to chaos. Nicole Bickford, as we wind down 15 years into the Colorado Environmental Film Festival, do you think it's been able to change minds, like forge new environmentalists, lead to policy change? Um, or is it like a lot of preaching to the choir? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Uh, I would say that the, uh, the main mission of the environmental, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival um, is using the power of film to inspire people first and foremost, which leads them to wanting to get more educated. And once you become more educated on whatever topic it is that interests you, then you start to become motivated to act. So um, it is kind of a growing uh, movement and there's momentum toward that activism piece. Um, we definitely make an effort with all of our films uh, to showcase each year films that show hope and show solutions, whether they're small or large um, scale solutions. Uh, we have our Eco Expo where we pair uh, environmentally minded businesses and local organizations that are working here in Colorado and around the world to, uh, to present opportunities for people to engage and start helping to address the environmental challenges that they see in these films. So I definitely think that all, um, you know, when people leave the festival or finish watching the films, there's definitely an element of hope there and a passion to start making those small changes, whether it's figuring out how to recycle your computer um, responsibly, or getting out and joining a science march. Hmm. Uh, but we do see uh, our feedback over several years has been that people do leave more motivated uh, to actually act. Nicole Bickford there. She directs the Colorado Environmental Film Festival. We also heard from Dave Steinke, who's a co-chair. The pinto bean is a source of pride in southwestern Colorado. In the towns of Cortez, Dolores, and Dove Creek, people get downright creative with pintos, including in desserts. In the 1950s and 60s, locals created a recipe contest, and winners were crowned pinto bean queens. The entries were compiled into a cookbook called From the Queen's Kitchen. Well, you just don't think of pinto beans being sweet. You know, buttered rum sauce, applesauce bean cookies. There's even a fudge recipe, right? There is, but the fudge is very good. And actually, most of the cakes and the cookies, all of them are tasty, very decadent. 82-year-old Ann Wilson-Brown of Cortez still uses her 1960s-era Bean Queen cookbook. Her dad, like many farmers in the area, grew pintos. Her mother fed a growing girl pinto bean sandwiches. And Anne has served pinto beans to three U.S. senators. She joins us for The Kitchen Shelf, our series about old Colorado community cookbooks. So, Anne, before we get to the beans and that Senate connection, how do you make a pinto bean sandwich? Pinto bean sandwich. Well, my mom always made them with fresh bread and of course i'm sure you could use regular bread the first time she said i don't have any lunch meat let's have a pinto bean sandwich and 
I was probably eight years old and I groaned because, you know, <laughs> girls that age. So I watched her and, oh my gosh, it was good. It was good. And was were, the, good. were the beans mashed up or were they still identifiable? No, Mom didn't mash them. I learned to mash them for my own kids after I started doing bean sandwiches for them. And then some people use Miracle Whip. Some people like mayonnaise. Some people just put warm beans and butter. Or you can mash up the beans and mix a little mayonnaise in them and put a sprig of mustard on them and put the other slice of bread on top. My mom cooked pintos millions of ways, adding potatoes or adding tomatoes or, of course, onions and ham. And that still is my favorite. So, Anne, you grew up on pinto bean sandwiches, but that did not mean you tired of them in adulthood, the sandwiches or or the beans. Is it true that you, you eat beans every week? Well, I eat beans, in fact, we had beans two days ago. Oh. Mostly in the winter because a pot of beans cooking just makes the house smell wonderful. <laughs> I never tired of them and, and neither have my family. How is it that you fed pinto beans to three U.S. senators, Ben Nighthorse Campbell, Ken Salazar, and Michael Bennett? <laughs> Usually it was when I would have a staff meeting because the district office was in Durango. You were a regional director for all of them. I was regional director for all of them, uh, office director. And so it was generally whenever we'd have a staff meeting or something and they would be invited and they would come. And well, I'm sure that Senator Salazar had beans as a young child. I don't know him ever telling me that. And I'm sure that Senator Campbell did. I'm not sure about Senator Bennett, but I do know that he enjoyed him when he was here. (laughs) Beans have been growing in southwestern Colorado for 130 years, at least. The little town of Dove Creek, home to two bean mills, has laid claim to being the pinto bean capital of the world. Is there something about the soil or the climate there? Um, the soil is is a real rich, sandy loam. Part of that soil, you know, came in from, uh, blew in from Arizona and, and the Southwest. Most of the beans early on were dryland beans because Dove Creek itself in that area is right around 7,500 feet altitude. So they would get more moisture than down in Cortez at 6,000 feet. So they had dry land beans for years until we, we built McPhee Dam and uh, Reservoir. And now they can irrigate the beans or, or hay or whatever they grow now. At one time, there were 14 different bean warehouses throughout the years. Now there are... Two, Dove Creek Bean Company is one, and they're the ones that have a lot of the gourmet beans, and the other one is Adobe Milling Company. Well, let's get back to this cookbook, which has gems like pinto bean pizza, 
I mentioned the fudge. They're fake chicken legs made out of pinto beans molded onto sticks. Uh, something called yeah. shocking pink pinto bean dip, pinto bean donuts, pinto bean and cabbage jello, uh, which sounds horrific. And the 1957 top prize winner, pinto bean special. Uh, that recipe sounds like a standard chili with tomatoes, onions, green peppers, ground beef. Right. The, where the special part comes in, the recipe calls for ladling that on top of a pancake. <laughs> and, and that's interesting. We make the pinto beans special a lot at our house, but I don't use the pancakes. You don't? <laughs> no, I don't know why she added pancakes. I guess that's what made it special. My favorite recipe is the pinto fiesta cake. Tell me about the fiesta cake. The fiesta cake was the 1960 Grand Award. It has two cups of pinto beans, and then it has diced raw apples. Oh, unexpected. And, of course, sugar and butter and eggs and flour and soda and salt and cinnamon and cloves, allspice, and now, then it has raisins. And then it has raisins. Now, what are the pinto beans doing in a cake like that? What purpose are they serving? <laughs> I talked to her oh, a couple of years ago about her cake because I have made it several times, and it's a really moist spice cake with raisins and apples, and because you mash up the pinto beans... You don't even notice the beans or the bean holes. Huh. So is it's, it is it uh, possible that the beans are providing a kind of steady moisture? Steady moisture like an applesauce would. Yeah. And, of course, beans are high in protein. So you get a little protein so, with your dessert. Yeah. So that makes it a dessert you can eat. At one time, I thought, well, I'll just use this recipe and I'll add some citrus to it and make some fruitcake out of it and of course it fell because the citrus didn't work in it but little counteracting effect there so yeah, do you think that was, people should be more adventurous with with beans i think people could be very adventurous with beans you can do all kinds of things and of course the cookbooks over the year have all different kinds of recipes every cookbook with different these you know, would be updated each year with the winners. Oh, yes. In a lot of these pinto bean recipes, you do not season the pinto beans. Uh, ca case in no. point, the mashed bean mince. Mince, yes, mince. <laughs> That's right. Uh, for most of the recipes, you, you do use just plain pinto beans cooked. You don't put any salt and pepper on them or any sugar or anything in them. You use them just plain. What about these mints? I can't fathom the idea of a bean consistency with a mint flavor. Well, you don't even notice the beans. It has a little flour, food coloring, peppermint, melted chocolate, and marchino cherries. Now, all of that mixed together does not sound exceptionally tasty, <laughs> but they are. I am desperate to try these. I want to say that you have been a driving force behind a new history museum that's set to open this summer in Cortez. And uh, this will come as no surprise. Pinto beans will be part of the story it tells. 
you'll give out abbreviated bean cookbooks called The Land of the Pinto Bean. And I just wonder, Anne Brown, what does that land mean to you? Well, it's home. It's definitely home. And the people that dry land the beans had to be very industrious and and gamblers, I suppose, because most farmers are gamblers because they gamble that the seed will come up. They gamble that the rain will come or they'll have enough water. But they are a special breed. They've all survived. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. Is that all we're saying? That's it. 82-year-old Ann Wilson-Brown is a fourth-generation Cortez-area resident who's eaten pinto beans her whole life. She shared from the Queen's Kitchen a collection of pinto bean recipes for our series The Kitchen Shelf. Recipes for pinto bean fiesta cake, pinto bean special, and yes, pinto bean fudge are at CPR.org. And if you have an old Colorado community cookbook to share, snap a picture of the cover and tweet at CPR Warner or email Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans not cornbread. And that is Colorado Matters for today, made possible every day by Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with thanks to Nancy Lawful.